The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. So you loathe Ken and Ebersol and everything they stand for, but you love to spend their money. You don't see any inconsistency there? I'm redistributing as many of their assets as I can. If I'm going to get in bed with the croupiers of a rigged game, I'm going to make damn sure their wallets are lighter in the morning. Sir? And that is for... It's the most expensive bottle they've got. I don't care if it comes in a box, you're not drinking it. It's not for me. You see that couple over there? I observed them while you were in the bathroom. The man's suit is frayed from dry cleaning. I'd wager it's the only one he's got. Therefore, he's saved to come here for a special occasion. Also, he keeps touching the inside pocket of his suit coat, like he's checking to see that something valuable is still there. He's about to propose, and I'm going to send this wine over as congratulations or condolences. It's lovely. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 11th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Socialism and other philosophies of state wealth redistribution are the greatest threat faced by Western society today. Yet most people in North America still do not even recognize what socialism is or why it is deadly, even as they complain bitterly about the direct effects of socialism on their daily lives. In fact, they openly support their own socialist and collectivist oppressions while remaining completely blind to their own observations about the harm in doing so. I I see it all the time, and that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. And if you don't believe me, just stay tuned for a sobering assessment of the average person's political ignorance and confusion when it comes to how socialism manifests itself all around us and why we're all in big trouble if we continue down this path. But first, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism in a world desperately flooded with socialism and socialist thinking. Do you know what socialism looks like or feels like? (laughs) Yeah, you do. Because most of the world, including the Western nations, are currently in a predominant state of socialism, a condition that will prove to be the undoing of our freedom and prosperity if we don't reverse the trend immediately. Most people might look at, say, Cuba or Venezuela as representatives of their understanding of socialism or communism or fascism. But what you see in those countries today is merely the culmination of a process that has long been underway And that process begins with how we think and view the world around us in political terms. And that very process is underway in North America today, as it has never been before. You won't ever, quote-unquote, see socialism in a black-and-white way that you might read about it in the writings of Karl Marx or other theoreticians of the left. Socialism, in practice, takes many forms, but all have one thing in common. A hatred of capitalism and everything to do 
with individual freedom. But you don't normally hear the word socialism or any other such descriptive used in the daily language of how people talk about socialism, even when it screws with their daily lives. And that's because socialism is always presented to them under a myriad of differing issues and concerns. So you can well imagine my pleasant surprise when in the pages of the Epoch Times on March 31st, I saw the headline, quote, Trump campaign focuses on exposing socialism by Ivan Penchikov, and he writes, quote, President Donald Trump's re-election campaign will focus on exposing a dramatic shift toward socialism among the Democratic candidates while spotlighting the successes of the president's administration. Kaylee McKeany, press secretary for the Trump 2020 campaign, told the Epoch Times. McKeany said it would have been unimaginable a decade ago for Democrats, including former President Barack Obama, to push for the radical proposals embraced by every major Democratic contender for the 2020 election. Every single member of the 2020 Democratic field will emerge with the scourge of socialism attached to them. They all want government takeover of health care, of energy, and with the Green New Deal. They want these radical proposals, she said. The campaign didn't plan to take on socialism, but is making the adjustment, given that the majority of the Democratic field has embraced the ideology. We thought that debate ended in the 1980s. We thought it ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But here we are today with Democrats wanting to take us the way of Venezuela, she said. So we're all keenly focused on socialism, every single one of us in the campaign. President Donald Trump's re-election campaign will focus on exposing a dramatic shift towards socialism among the Democratic candidates, while spotlighting the successes of the president's administration. Of the eight Democratic presidential candidates who have officially declared their intention to run and are polling at 1% or more, seven support the socialist Medicare for All and the Green New Deal policies. We're going to expose it, McKeoney said. You know, the facts don't lie. Bernie Sanders, back in 2013, and back when he was proposing legislation on single-payer health care, he had zero co-sponsors. Now he has virtually the entirety of the Democratic field. Same for free college. And all of these socialist proposals that would cost our economy tens of trillions of dollars, raise everyone's taxes, completely explode our debt. This is socialism. It's wrecked economies, it's destroyed personal freedoms, and now it's amazing to me that on a democratic debate stage you're going to hear the word socialism. Wow. Only 18% of Americans view socialism in a positive light, continues the article. While polling data for Medicare for All suggests that Americans support it, the approval rating drops significantly when the policy is described as socialized medicine or if respondents learn that the policy will result in tax increases and the elimination of private health insurance. So that's the end of that article. But, you know, my, my objection to this article is that all the observations come far too late. I mean, from my point of view, I saw all of these things 30, 40 years ago, and the trend has never changed. It's just that we're further down the road towards the left. We've always been moving in that direction, though. We've never taken a single step right in my entire political life. I've never seen a single step taken right. Socialism is best described as the political system of the left. The theory behind socialism might be communism, or it might be fascism, or some other form of collectivism that places the state above the individual, and which, as a consequence, can never compete with or match the incredible true social progress that naturally takes place 
in a free capitalist society. Freedom and capitalism are, of course, the political systems of the right. The theory behind freedom rests on the idea of individual rights and the individual equality before and under the law. Both are concepts opposed by the left. Yet even those who would openly oppose socialism still don't recognize socialism if it hits them directly in the face. And that will be our first demonstration of the day. Now, about a week or so ago, I received a card in my mailbox with the heading on it reading, $307. Have you claimed your climate action incentive payment yet? Well, no, I haven't, I thought to myself. What climate action do I have to take to claim this promised $307? So I read on. Pollution has a cost. It impacts the air we breathe, our children's health, and our economy. That's why the government of Canada has put a price on carbon pollution. The government of Canada has introduced a new climate action incentive payment. In Ontario, a family of four could receive $307 in 2019. You can claim it when you file your income tax and benefit return, end quote. Wow, so I don't have to take any climate action, quote unquote, in order to get the cash, even though the payment is being made to me based on my climate action incentive, quote unquote. Talk about BS. And I realized right away that this card itself was pollution, but of a sort far more dangerous than anything to do with the weather or our planetary climate. It was a sign of the political pollution of socialism, a pure wealth redistribution scheme being promoted on utterly fraudulent grounds. Fighting climate change and calling the gas of life carbon dioxide, quote-unquote carbon pollution, is so offensive to any thinking person that in a normal world where people were free to think and draw their own objective conclusions, this kind of fraud would be intolerable. But this is simply one of many examples of socialism in action. It has nothing to do with climate or with pollution. In fact, when I looked at who issued this climate action incentive payment propaganda, it was clearly printed in small print on the lower left side of the card. Take a look at yours if you've got one. The card itself is being distributed by the Canada Revenue Agency. In other words, Canada's tax collector. It wasn't issued by any sort of climate agency or environmental agency. It was issued by the tax department. Every sentence on the card was a fraudulent lie. No climate action has either been called for or even defined. There's no such thing as carbon pollution unless you realize that you and I are the carbon units. That's what the government's talking about, and carbon dioxide is not and never has been a pollutant. But facts don't seem to matter to the left, and this climate action incentive is an outright bribe for votes produced at taxpayer expense to push the climate change leftist propaganda of the Trudeau government. So you can well imagine my disappointment at what you are about to hear next. On April 2nd, radio host Tom McConnell announced that the carbon tax was being charged in Ontario beginning the day before, and then spent the bulk of his three-hour morning show on CJBK AM 1290 in London and CKTB AM 610 in St. Catharines taking calls and reactions to the scheme. And this is another one of those test tube demonstrations of just how confused people get about 
a very simple issue because their political compass is completely broken. They don't know left from right or up from down. The following conversations have been sampled from the much longer three-hour talk show, a discussion that could have been described as fake views about fake news. Anything right is just nowhere to be seen or heard. Yesterday, the gas tax, I should say the carbon tax, took effect. It'll be 3.9 cents on a cubic meter of your natural gas, 4.4 cents on a liter of your gasoline, slightly higher when it is on diesel fuel. As well, not surprisingly, leaked from Environment Canada and Climate Change was a report that Canada was warming faster than the rest of the world to bolster you know, the government, this is probably going to be a huge election issue. One is going to be trust. Two is going to be climate change. That That's what the election is shaping up to be. Who do you trust? David, how are you? All right, good morning, Tom. So the thing that gets me about all of this is that they talk about it, we, we must do something, in it, uh, and, and this is the reason that Canadians must pay more, except there's never any quantitative evidence of anything that it proves to do anything at all other than the fact of just take money out of the people's pocket, place it in the hands of the government for them to spend it on future votes or whatever they may need, mm-hmm. because we know the air is not going to get any better. Uh, I, I would like to think that Canada as a country, we overall do very well. But before we get going on just taxing uh, Canadians, you might want to talk to China, mm-hmm. you might want to talk to India, and you might want to talk to Pakistan. Those three countries are doing nothing, and they are basically half the world in population. But once again, we're told this is what we must do. And when we ask, well, show us the numbers. Show us how, by, by making an economic sacrifice, you've improved the air quality and the, and the greenhouse emissions. They will have none. And that really is my issue, Tom. Tom, it's all well and good to claim the moral high ground. But if what you're doing makes no impact, why are you doing it? Tom, no matter how much taxing we do to carbon, it'll not be effective unless places like China and India are on board dealing with carbon like Canada. Until then, this carbon tax is just a tax grab. Murray, how are you? I'm well, Thomas. What about all these uh, trucks that deliver to the grocery stores? So their their bill is going to be up. So guess what, people, especially you liberals. Now, the same people that I, I'm assuming you're trying to help, as in not through the carbon tax, but social programs, are going to suffer more. All right. If you don't think a carbon tax would be effective then as a means to change behavior, what would... I got it easy. It's an easy one, Tom. All right. It's called one word, innovation. Right? That would take care of it all. You know, it just, it it doesn't make sense. You you take from one hand and give to the other. Something's wrong. There, you know what? It's not making. Okay. Figuring out. All right. Thanks, Murray. Rocco, how are you? I've, I've got a few points I wrote down here that uh, I haven't heard anybody bring up, like even in, you know, if I listen to talk radio in Toronto here, if I could just spew them out, like, real quick. Go for it. Okay. My first one is the intensity of the sun, which controls all climate. And we're, we're sending a space, some, some module to, to monitor the sun. It's heading right into the sun. But no one ever talks about that, and the sun goes through cycles. And I think right now we're in one of those cycles because climate always changes. Hey, we used to have a kilometer of ice above us right now here in the around uh, Lake Ontario. Okay, this is my first point. Second point is if Canada is warming, 
then that could be one of, you know, we'll become an agricultural leader in the world. I mean, besides, besides the marijuana, everything else. Then my other point, my, one of my last points is, it's basically a tax and refund. So why bother to have the tax? And our Pinocchio prime minister and his Dumbledore ministers, there's, there's another agenda. That's why I say Dumbledore ministers. Rocco, thanks for spewing. Sandra, we're at a we're Hi. at a stand down here, aren't we? <laughs> we're not going to do anything until someone else does something. Well, you know, I know nothing about science, Tom. I'm just kind of a no. I look at things a little bit differently. I mean, who who would give you a tax because they're going to take it from you and give it back to you? Who believes that? Nobody. Sandra, nobody believes that. Have a great day. Okay. How are you? Hey, Tommy. All this carbon tax is crap, and I know it because I lost a million dollars fighting the government over it. Wow! I built a product that was the most clean, environmentally friendly um, heating product in Canada, and it was a corn stove. I talked to you about this. Right. And the government couldn't wait to get me out of business. And I still got thousands of corn stoves working. I'm sending parts down to Massachusetts today to a guy that's got one. Yeah. There's people got them all over. They burn dry shelled corn to heat a house. Okay. And no emissions. All right, hold on a second. What are you burning? The kernel or the husk? The kernel. Okay. And the little auger feeds the corn into the little pot and it burns. Right. They want to put corn in your car, the, the ethanol. Yes. Because it burns hotter and cleaner than gas. Well, we burnt corn in a solid form without the manufacturing of the ethanol. Okay. So the farmer could take the corn off, put it in his stove, and not use oil. I put stoves in people's old farmhouses. They eliminated their oil bill. Yeah. And they grew their own product. Like, all I wanted the government to say, or the Minister of Agriculture, is to say that this is a good thing for the farmers, because farmers are going to sell corn to you and me to heat our houses. But they would not back me, and they wanted to get rid of me. And the reason was, is that the corn going into the stove, they're going to lose revenue off it, because they're not going to get the income tax off the farmer, and they're not going to get the HST off the oil man, because it's unregulated. Okay. So, so if a farmer put corn in his stove, that would be corn that he'd take off the wagon, yeah. and at the end of the year, he wouldn't pay, see, that's off his profit. Right? Yeah. It'd be less profit. He's not going to pay tax. And also, he's not going to be paying HST on this corn. But is it any different than burning wood from your own wood lot? No, corn's cleaner. Yeah, I, I know. But in terms of the just the yeah, revenue. They, yeah, they would like to get rid of that. Yeah. They could. And is it cleaner, though? It's a, like a wood stove is not the most efficient thing. No. Okay. I used to go to Western Fair. I used to have a big tent. Yeah. And I put four corn stoves in the tent with no exhaust hooked up. They're just exhausting in the tent, running there. And people would say, where's the smoke? I said, I'd show them. I'd go to the back of the stove. I said, look, it won't even make your eyes water. I said, any other heating product would kill us in this tent. It was that clean. And anybody that's got one in the area can, can verify that. Wow. There's lots of them in your area. Like, I've sold them all over. Yeah. But... But the government could not wait to get me out of business.
all about the tack. It was all about their end of the tack. Yeah. All right. Murray, have a great day. Have a good day. Brian, how are you? Let me squeeze you in. Not too bad. All right. If not a uh, carbon tax, is there any? What What would you think the government should do? Unless you can prove to me, and you got a measurement that says, okay, here's what that carbon tax did. It reduced the carbon emissions by so much. I don't want to hear about it, and I know you can't do it. It's just another reason to take your money. Jim Fannin, how are you? I'm unbelievable, Tommy. Uh, it seems to be a little bit uh, way too fashionable of late to dump on capitalism. Do you hear me? You know, like in the States, especially this idea that, you know, more socialism is the answer. Hey, I, I'm a lefty from a long time ago, man, but it's, I've, I've swung right on a bunch of issues like uh, as of late, but I'm still kind of based in that, you know, you got to take care of each other. But socialism is not the answer. You need a mix. But I think socialism is more likely to be corrupt and, well, murderous. No system's perfect, and we need a mix and balance. But I don't like the government taking my money and redistributing it okay. to anyone, but especially their friends. So I like the idea of the carbon fee and dividend. I like the concept. Uh, you know, less taxes when I'm doing good things when I'm going to work. Uh, you know, and more taxes when I'm buying crap that ends up in a landfill or ends up in the air. Okay, so I'm okay with the carbon tax as a concept, but these a-holes aren't putting the money where we need it. And, like, if you let me keep more of my money, I'll spend it where I get value. And I think it's time that we make the producers responsible for the full life cycle, for the cost of what they are producing. I mean, all of the impacts health costs, environmental costs, social costs, everything. If it's bad for society, it should be more expensive. Johnny, how are you? I'm good. I, I, first of all, let me just say that I was listening to Murdy. Was it Murdy with the, with the stove? Yeah, the corn stove. And I know what Murdy's talking about when he said about going before the government. Because in the old days, and I make this quick, you didn't even go. You sent in what you were going to do to this board. Materials Evaluation Committee. They decided yes or no without ever talking to you, without ever seeing you, that we were the first people ever to get a meeting with them. And when we were finished with them, to make a long story short, three of them had to resign from the board because they had conflicts of interest with what we were doing. Okay? These were all from big companies. Now, about the uh, capitalism. Capitalism is about greed and making money. And I don't care, I said to you before, if you go in with something that's going to change the world, there are companies there that have invested billions and billions of dollars in what they do. They do not want you. That's as simple as that, okay? Yeah, it's as simple as that. <laughs> but if capitalism is about greed and making money, then every single person on the face of the planet is a capitalist. But if so, then socialism is all about greed and stealing money, if you want to make a direct comparison between the two on those grounds. But what Johnny has described is socialism, state control of the economy. He hasn't been describing capitalism. Crony politics, not crony capitalism, which is an oxymoronic and contradictory term. Capitalism means a separation of the state from economics. Capitalism is based on free markets and the principle of consensual transactions, not on controlled markets and forced transactions. And free means free from government, for heaven's sakes. But even in his ignorance, Johnny has pointed to a truth. 
that when governments regulate the economy, the big companies, quote-unquote, control the agenda. And this is not capitalism again, but socialism. Socialism is force. And forcing people out of the marketplace by law is no different than organized crime or criminals doing the same thing. Johnny never gets anything right because he's completely on the left. And so are a lot of other people who drink the Kool-Aid of socialism without even recognizing what it is, although they're able to describe it explicitly. First, let's be clear about one major point of reality that every single one of the callers and Tom McConnell himself simply chose to ignore. A carbon tax is not a tax on carbon. <laughs> you know, unless you do realize that you and I are the carbon units being taxed because we are the carbon, then it makes sense. Yeah, it's a carbon tax because we're the carbon and we're being taxed. But outside of that context, it makes no sense. What the government's falsely calling carbon is in reality carbon dioxide, planet Earth's gas of life, an element which is not a pollutant by any stretch of the imagination and which does not cause global warming, but rather is a consequence of the production of heat. Not a single participant in the whole morning's conversation even hinted at this, proving conclusively that, yes, you can fool all of the people most of the time. However, everybody knows there's something wrong with the tax, that it isn't exactly what it's pretending to be, but beyond that, they're all lost in the woods of carbon vegetation. And it was purposely planned that way. They've swallowed the proverbial Kool-Aid. All of the dissenters to the so-called carbon tax were only complaining that other countries like China, India, and Pakistan weren't in on participating with this outright fraud, but would totally accept the fraud if everyone else contributed to it. Does that make sense? Why do it if no impact, asked one of the callers. We need to plant more trees. It will not be effective until other countries come on board. Until then, it's just a tax grab. Well, I got news for you. Even if other countries came on board, it would still just be a tax grab, but also much more. It's an assertion of state control of the means of production, since production is the source of the heat that supposedly produces the CO2 to which they object. CO2 does not create the heat any more in the process of production than it does in the Earth's atmosphere. CO2 is a consequence of heat, not the other way around, as our social scientists falsely describe it. It doesn't make sense, says one caller. Take from one hand and give to the other, she says. Well, yes, that makes perfect sense. And it's perfectly consistent with socialist theory and practice. But if you don't know what socialism is, you don't even know what this is that you've just described with your own words. Even caller Rocco, who was the only person to acknowledge that something other than CO2 was the cause, he called, you know, he said the sun had a role in climate change, included with, quote, it's basically a tax and refund, so why bother having the tax? There's another agenda, he says. Yes, Rocco, it's called socialism, and it's all about redistributing wealth from those who have it to those who don't. None of them understand this. They're, they're, they're literally defining the word, but they don't know the word. It's another agenda. Ooh, it's a, it's a conspiracy. Yeah, it is. It's called socialism, and it's openly there for you to find and discover and learn that word. The fact of climate change is incidental. It's meaningless and arbitrary to the socialist agenda. So how do we actually deal with climate change when it happens? Simple. We adapt to it. 
There's no correct temperature that the earth must adhere to just because those on the left operate on a primacy of consciousness. That's ridiculous. Sandra Caller says, I know nothing about science. Who would give you a tax because they're going to take it from you and give it back to you, she asks. Sandra, socialists would. And they won't be giving you back the same amount that they take. There's no truth whatsoever that the government is taxing the same people at the same amount that it's refunding to them. But even if that were so, what would be its purpose? Well, to bribe voters with their own money. There's an election coming, don't you know? Then there was that incredible story of Murray's, whose corn stove cost him a million dollars when he was trying to get it you know, approved by the government. The government couldn't wait to get him out of business, he says. Well, you see, Murray swallowed the socialist BS, hook, line, and sinker. So why did the government so rebuke him? Because Murray, the guy with an actual solution to the pretended problem cited by the government, is a capitalist. He's making a profit from his invention, and socialists hate capitalists for exactly that reason. Because capitalism is always accomplishing what the government cannot do. The climate change agenda is explicitly anti-capitalist and does not want any sort of free market solving any kind of pollution problems. That's not what this is about. This is about control of the economy. Then there was caller Jim, who for a brief moment almost sounded like he was asking the right question. He said, you know, it's too fashionable to dump on capitalism, he said. Only then he became a complete extremist of the center, which I discussed on a couple of recent past broadcasts. I mean, this guy is worse than, than the enemy. You know, Jim says, I'm a lefty who swung right. But we need a mix of socialism and capitalism. Socialism is more likely to be corrupt and murderous, he says. No system's perfect. We need a mix and balance. Did he hear himself when he said that? Jim is still a lefty in totality. He hasn't moved to the right at all. He has no comprehension of what it means to be on the right. And just as the Ayn Rand quote we cited a few shows back said, you know, it described how the person in the middle or on the center of the political polarity is the most evil of all. Jim has given us an explicit demonstration of that. He openly calls for a mix of socialism and capitalism, two systems exactly the opposite of each other, and actually acknowledges, that's the funny part, that socialism is corrupt and murderous, but hey, it should be mixed with a system of capitalism which operates on a principle of free markets and consensual economic transaction. That, that's insane. I mean, this is beyond confusion, and I've only played a small part of his conversation here today, and the rest was just a huge train wreck in every sense of the word. Complete meltdown. And with friends like Jim, capitalism needs no enemies. But to put the icing on his own cake of hypocrisy and confusion, Jim says, quote, I don't like the government taking my money and redistributing it to anyone, especially their friends. I'm okay with the carbon tax as a concept, but these a-holes aren't putting the money where we need it, end quote. You know, someone needs to give Jim's head a shake. He says he's okay with the carbon tax as a concept, but that's a concept that's all about taking his money and redistributing it to others. And in the same sentence, he says how he doesn't like the government taking his money and redistributing it to anyone. So he doesn't support the carbon tax as a concept. He doesn't understand it. Just as I concluded on our show two weeks ago, the show we entitled The Misdirection That Was Right, 
Sad to say, the left has been winning the label war in the political arena. In addition to the left's extreme right pejorative, they have contrived other anti-concepts like Islamophobia and carbon pollution as effective labels to compromise their opponents. And you can hear the results of it. It works beautifully. They do this because it works. And it works because those on the right keep trying to avoid being labeled. And that's why you don't hear them calling in on shows like this. The left intentionally associates extreme right-wing with racism, fascism, Islamophobia, hate, and a whole host of negative associations that properly align with the left. So as a consequence, a less victory in the political war of labels has been won by default thanks to a disarmed and manipulated right. One conditioned to be ashamed by its own identity. Those on the left do not fear being labeled left-wing, extreme, or otherwise. The same cannot be said for those on the right who retreat or become defensive on being labeled right. Got some feedback to that comment from someone we all know, Dave Plum, author of Inconveniently Screwed and who's appeared on this show. And he responded to my statement where I wrote, those on the right retreat or become defensive on being labeled right. And he responds, quote, not all of us. Some interesting verbal fireworks transpired at the conclusion of my PowerPoint presentation on climate science at my last optimist meeting. One of the members left extremely pissed off at me and my message. She challenged the validity of everything I said on the basis that it was not based on primary data, by which she meant data that I had personally collected through exhaustive field research. She asked if I'm a climate change denier. No, I replied. In the eyes of the climate change alarmists, I'm something far worse than a denier. I'm a climate change promoter. I further explained how crucial continuous climate change has been to the development of complex life, humans, for example, on this planet, and for the continuance of that life. I think that answer set her back a tad, as she no doubt expected me to deny being a denier. The primary data issue is, of course, a leftist political red herring that has nothing to do with challenging the science or Earth's natural history, and an argument I could not possibly have won. I pointed out that I used the primary data from sources such as Dr. Milankovic, NASA, the U.S. Geological Survey, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, etc. I directed her to check the 119 endnote references in my book for the source information. That didn't satisfy her, of course, because there's no satisfying people who've drunk that much liberal Kool-Aid. If I had said that, yes, indeed, it's all based on data I've personally collected, organized, and analyzed to arrive at my conclusions, the obvious comeback is to question where I've published my results and conclusions, and furthermore, what makes me think my primary data is better than the primary data used by the IPCC? It would be quite acceptable for the IPCC to use the same sources I used, but, but apparently not for anybody offering an opposing opinion as to the conclusions based on the same data. A couple of teachers weren't too happy about my comments in reference to the Ontario High School curricula. 131 references to climate change, 44 references to greenhouse gas, and one single solitary reference to the Milankovitch cycles. I relayed my experience about the college-aged cashier who couldn't do the mental arithmetic required to know that $4.97 plus 3 pennies equaled $5 without counting it all out to make sure it really added up to 500 cents before she'd give me a $5 bill in exchange. I stated that I would have been able to do that arithmetic in my head in grade 3 and wondered what they've been teaching in our school system for quite some time now. One of the teachers, now retired, said that things were being done a little differently now, to which I could only reply, I'll say. 
I guess in the liberal world, different automatically means better. Just doesn't necessarily work out that way in the real world. Can't please everyone. Cheers, Dave Plum. And you certainly will never be able to please anyone on the left, Dave. They're unpleasable, even when they get what they want. That only makes them less pleasant. Since the purpose of the left is to destroy. Once they've destroyed one thing, they just go on to the next. That's all they know how to do. And to make that point for us, coming up next is the voice of one of the left's most well-known advocates. But since the Reagan years found himself leaving the left and having discovered what is truly right, and that person is David Horowitz, speaking to the group Young America's Foundation in March of 2018. Civilizations die when they cease to believe in themselves. They lose the power to defend themselves and the will to survive. We are witnessing the death of Europe as we speak for that very reason. Europe has accepted millions, millions of people who absolutely despise them. There are rape epidemics across Europe and the governments protect the rapists and persecute and prosecute uh, heroic objectors to the rape epidemics like Katie Hopkins. Um, there are no-go zones where these invaders say, this is where your authority stops, where the police can't go and don't go. Uh, with the collusion of all the, I, I hate the term liberal because they're bigots, but they embrace this. And why do they embrace it? Because they condemn their own countries. This was all summed up for me, so it's on YouTube. The leader of the Green Party in Germany, speaking in front of the Reichstag, the parliament, said in 30 years, ethnic Germans will be a minority in Germany. And that's a good thing. Let that sink in. Europe uh, has been persuaded, if you like, by the left. There's a gigantic guilt complex. It's one of the greatest, if not the greatest civilization in the history of the world, European civilization. And yet they can't summon the will to defend themselves. I was just wondering, what do you think for white conservatives and specifically white male conservatives, what's the best way for them to speak so that liberals will listen to them as they're being seen as oppressors? Well, they're not liberal. Right, yes. So I don't think there's any way to speak to a leftist and make them see anything. <laughs> what I would advise is you, you, you've got to know your history. Dinesh D'Souza has written a really good book about the Democratic Party. First of all, people talk about 400 years of slavery in America. Well, from 1787, when the United States of America was created, to 1865 is only 78 years. It's racist to begin with to 
confuse America with the English colonies. After all, we fought a revolution against England to create this country, uh, about, which is all about individual freedom and individual accountability. So you have to, first of all, be confident. And, and this is why this is so sinister, because it's an attack. As I said, if you don't, if the civilization ceases to believe in itself, that's when it dies. And, that, and that's true of all of us. So you, you can't credit them. If they say institute white supremacy, how lunatic, how stupid is that? Eight years of a black president who was elected with 56% of his vote was whites. There's not a black country in the world that's elected a white president, nor is there an Asian country in the world that's elected. This is an incredible country. And there, anyway, you have to, what can I say? <laughs> I, I have, we, read my books, read Dinesh's books, they're, they're out there. You really, you have to arm yourself, that's what it's about. But don't defer to them, and don't defer to their stupidities. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It's thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Visit www.justrightmedia.org or go directly to paypal.me slash justrightmedia to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. I just have a couple of comments to make about what we just heard before we move on to more of David Horowitz's revelations about the left. Civilizations die, points out Horowitz, echoing my own observation a few shows back about how short-lived the world's greatest civilizations have endured at their peaks, with about 150 years being the record so far, one and a half lifetimes end-to-end, as I described it. Now, I fully agree that we have to know our history. True. But we don't learn from history. We only witness it. To learn not just what happened in history, but why, you have to know your philosophy. And it is on this count that the West has failed miserably. How how ironic it is that Ayn Rand, possibly the world's greatest philosopher, whose philosophy she called objectivism, has for me and thousands of others proven to be the one that is in fact based on objectivity and reason, should be so little known, indeed rejected, by many on the so-called right. I have yet to discover any moral or political issue that her philosophy did not directly address. But if all you know is her fiction novels, well, you don't know Rand. If you want to know the why behind history's most significant events, objectivism, in my experience, has always steered me in the right direction. It's not surprising that those who understand freedom and capitalism the best are those who've experienced life without freedom and capitalism. People from communist and totalitarian regimes, people from regimes of the left, Now, David Horowitz is bang on when he says that we have to arm ourselves. He, of course, means intellectually. And once intellectually armed, 
we can proceed to something Ayn Rand has advocated, to intellectually polarizing every issue on the left to expose it for what it actually is. Talked about this on a past show. This is why the left so fears and speaks against polarization. They want everybody to defer to their stupidities, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. But the big issue, and the significant one at this juncture, I think, is to be found in the question that was asked of Horowitz about conservatives and how they should attempt to deal with the left. And when I heard Horowitz answer her question with, well, there is no way to speak to a leftist and make him see anything, well, then I knew that he had truly crossed over from the left polarity to the right one. Which begs the Big Bang question, doesn't it? How does one confront or oppose or defeat what we are calling the left? If the left is unapproachable in terms of any kind of compromise or reason or discussion, which is the case and always has been, then confronting the left is a waste of time and resources, isn't it? So what should we do? How can we approach the problem effectively? How can we actually eventually defeat the left in a meaningful way? It's been done before. I have my own ideas about this, which I'll introduce in our final segment of today's show, after we hear again from David Horowitz. Because the first step towards confronting the left effectively is to truly understand what the left is and what it is not. And I've learned from observation that many people simply cannot accept the truth about the left because it's difficult for people of good will to accept that so great an evil could have so great a following. Here's David Horowitz to help describe this truth. America has an inspirational vision that, that empowers us, that makes us want to protect, protect her, that wants, makes us want to survive. And you all know it. It's, it's right in our birth certificate. The idea that all of God's creatures are equal in the eyes of God and therefore must be equal in the eyes of government and that they are endowed by their creator the right to liberty, individual freedom, that people are not judged by their origins, they're not judged by their race, they're not judged by their ethnicity, they're judged according to their merits. That's our founding, founding idea. It's under attack, and I, part of my, my mission as a former leftist is to get conservatives to stop being so nice. <laughs> These people are evil, and they intend evil. But the left, what the left says to America is that you are a nation built on slavery and genocide. That is a death sentence for our country, and they intend it that way. Here's what Obama said. He said, the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination in almost every institution of our lives casts a long shadow, and it's still part of our DNA that's passed on. We're not cured of it. Now, where does this all come from? It comes from a, an evolution of the communist movement. The left in this country, progressives, you know, Black Lives Matter actually was created by three Maoists literally. 
um, and is embraced by the Democratic Party, a violent, racist organization. Um, but it comes out of the Marxist left. In the 60s, we realized, we on the left, if you had met me in the 60s and asked me what, how I did to find my politics, I would say I'm a revolutionary Marxist. In the 60s, we kind of realized when the hard hats, the construction workers, were beating up leftist demonstrators that Marx's model sort of didn't work, where the working class was going to create this revolution. So all these people, to avoid fighting communists in Southeast Asia, stayed in the universities and now control them, literally. This left controls our universities. And <clears throat> they devised or they created a theory which is referred to as cultural Marxism, but you know as identity politics. Marx's model was there's an oppressive ruling class capitalists, owners of the means of production, and they oppress everybody. Um, and actually, Marx is, well, I was going to say, it was a much more coherent ideology, even though it was completely crap um, and, and incredibly destructive. Okay, so when it didn't work, what the leftists, what, what, the, what I would call, what should have been called neo-communists, um, they just transferred it to race, gender, sexual orientation. I mean, they'll, they'll keep finding things. Um, it's, a, it's the same idea, though, that there's this ruling caste. It's white heterosexual males. It's not very subtle. <laughs> uh, and if you eliminate them, uh, you know, the world will be paradise. So we have a, a totalitarian threat here. Basically, the idea is we are guilty whites. We built this country on genocide and slavery. It's a lie, by the way. Let's take slavery. This is an absolute lie. Slavery existed in Africa for a thousand years before a white person ever set foot there. Slavery has existed in all societies for 3,000 years. And in all those 3,000 years, no one ever said it was immoral until Wilberforce, a white Christian male in England, said so. And Thomas Jefferson wrote it into our birth certificate as a country. And within 78 years, slavery was abolished. Every black person in this country owes their freedom to Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and the 350,000 mainly white Union soldiers who gave their lives to free him, free them. The truth is blacks enslaved blacks and white people freed them. Americans can be proud of their history. And why didn't they do it at the outset of the country? Obviously. If they had declared 
slaves free at the birth of the country, the South would have aligned with the greatest empire in the world, England, which was still a slave nation, and destroyed the American experiment, and we might have slavery today in this country for all, for all we know. How, how many people have uh, heard and, and listened to the way I formulated that the Constitution, of course the Constitution has to be declared an evil document by the left, that the Constitution regards black people as three-fifths of a human being. I see young people. As I taught that in school. I'm Al Gore. They also, all the Democrats say that. It's a lie. The Constitution of the United States does not use the word black. You will not find the word black, white, slave, women, woman, or male in the Constitution because the founders actually believed in the equality of all people. They couldn't achieve it then, but they believed in it. That's why those terms are not, these are universal rights for all of God's creatures. The three-fifths compromise was actually good for the anti-slavery forces. It was about um, how you count the population to create a congressional district, because all congressional districts have to be equal size. And the slave, the South wanted slaves counted as a full person, even though they couldn't vote, even though they were unfree. And the anti-slave North said, no, you can only, have, it can only be three-fifths. Had nothing to do with black people. It had to do with people who were not free. And there were 500,000 free blacks in America at the time. So these are monstrous lies about our history. Uh, and what the purpose, to return to what I said at the outset, is to destroy this country. Leftists hate America. Well, I guess now we can see what Horowitz meant by knowing history. And while we must acknowledge that Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and 350,000 Union soldiers were the people who ended slavery in the United States, we cannot ignore that capitalism is what ended slavery. As a free nation, capitalism naturally emerged in America as the predominant economic system, and slavery is incompatible with capitalism. And remember, slavery is completely at home in any leftist regime. One of the things that Horowitz did not raise about the whole racial question, and which I regard as critical, is the whole idea of why the left is so anti-white. The left is anti-white because by white, the left really means Western values. Now, just before our last break, I pointed out that given the left's unapproachability, then confronting the left is a waste of time and resources. So what should we do? Well, part of the answer is in David Horowitz's observation when he said, quote, part of my mission is to get conservatives to stop being so nice. These people are evil, and they intend evil, he says, referring to the left. And what I've come to a conclusion on this whole matter is something more along the lines of this. What needs to be confronted are not those on the left, but those on the right. 
who just sit there and let the left get away with all of its nonsense. And they do this mostly by supporting politicians of the so-called center or of the left, and they do it by tolerating all their leftist irrationalities, which are ultimately destructive in the extreme. Now, how to do that, how to confront the left and how to fight the left with explicit and provable tactics will become an increasing theme on upcoming broadcasts of this show. But let me briefly wrap up by saying this. Socialism seems attractive because it has always been defined in terms of its promised utopian ends. But the means to achieve those ends is of necessity continually avoided, evaded, and misrepresented. And that's because in reality, ends and means are always the same in practice. And when the means is always the use of state force, well, then that's going to be the ends as well. Now, capitalism, on the other hand, has always been defined by its means and never by any kind of promised end. And that's because what we call capitalism, ends and means are the same. Individual freedom and individual rights that naturally accompany freedom there are no ends as such. You're already there. And as far as the social and socialism is concerned, I think it's about time to point out that it is in practice always anti-social. Socialism is anti-social. The individual does not exist under any theory of collectivism except as part of a greater whole whose duty it is to serve the whole, whatever that might mean. And it could mean anything some dictator says it does. The great irony here is that if it's a social system you're looking for, well, freedom and capitalism are it. Individual rights define social interactions in a free society. And here's the kicker. Individual rights are a social concept. Individualism is a social concept. Group rights are not a social concept. Group rights are both an anti-concept and anti-social. So you have to understand, individualism is a social concept where freedom of choice and consent are the ruling social principles. The thing to understand about the left is that everything for the left is subjective and emanates from its primacy of consciousness. The left has an agenda of destruction. Nothing constructive comes out of the left. And all facts and arguments will be chosen to promote that agenda. That includes everything from outright lying about history and about slavery and, and racism and sexism, all invented words, to lying about climate change and about how the science is settled and how scientists all agree about fighting climate change with CO2 taxes. What a ridiculous notion. To believe that any truly objective and random sampling of scientists would all agree about human activity being the major cause of climate change is indeed a grand leap of faith. So remember, no more Mr. Nice Guy when it comes to dealing with the ideologies of the left. Time's running out right now, so join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the clothes. Everything will be alright. Uh, we are supposed to interview a prisoner. Certainly. Schultz, go to Barracks G and... Hogan? <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't realize you were entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, wait, uh, Colonel Click. We will talk to this prisoner. 
Colonel Hogan? <laughs> oh, sir, I have a much better man for you. Very intelligent. Let me get him. <laughs> no, this man will do. He is supposed to be picked at random. Of course, but you see, this man in barracks, gee, oh, you just won't find anyone more random. So I can't <laughs> <laughs> 